My guest for this episode is Dr. Herschel York, beloved pastor and professor of homiletics at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and my boss there is the dean of the School of Theology. We had a great time talking about theological education and rhetorical criticism of the New Testament and all sorts of other things. Thanks for tuning in. Actually, one question I always like to ask people is, uh, actually, what was your first car? Uh, when I was in the ninth grade, my dad told me, he said, I need to tell you two things. He said, I, I can't pay your way through college, so you need to keep your grades good and right. get a free ride, right. which I did. And he said, and I can't buy you a car. If you ever buy a car, it'll be because you bought it. Right. And I didn't buy a car until Tony and I were engaged, and I bought it from my dad. Okay. And it was a, uh, I want to say, 1976 Buick Saber. Oh, my. Okay. Going uh, big time. It was planning for your old manhood. As I was thinking about chatting with you, one of the first things that came to mind was the whole question that I experience and a lot of other people do too of the relationship of the church and the academy so you know I, I'm like many people regularly involved in the church but I don't think most people have done as much pastoring and as much professoring as you have and even simultaneously and even with your dean role now that adds another yeah. layer to it beyond just being a professor so just you know just kind of an open question your thoughts on the connection between the church and the academy, your individual role, just anything that comes to mind. Well, I'm first, last, and always a churchman. And if you disconnect the academy from the church, it's going to go haywire. I just, I think that's, it's history. Mm -hmm. I I think I can demonstrate that really easily. Right. Uh, So the academy needs to be connected to the church. and it serves the church, and this is what I, one of the things I love about Southern seminaries. I think we we've got that right. Right. Uh, but the church needs the academy. Uh, we we need those that are going to engage the culture and think on a deep level. And so, when when you have that balance, where you've got you know the church is the institution that Jesus built. Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it, and. You get that priority, but then you have the academy that is in service of the church and is there to deepen and strengthen and teach theology on behalf of the church. I think uh, it works well. And so I love being connected to both. You know, I mean, I I tell people I'm God's spoiled child, that I I get to do both things. And I love being engaged with students forming pastors and shepherds yep. but I love the reality of, of the church I the seven years that I did not pastor uh, I, I missed it I, yeah. I, I, I grieved it really love being involved in people's lives I love preaching to the same people every week yeah. you know you're walking through life with them I know their stories I mean the stories of people at Buck Run where I pastor are phenomenal I and mean, we've got you know, guys that I led to Christ in prison are members of our church now. Been right. there more than ten years, and uh, to see their story, yeah. and we have cabinet secretaries, and uh, most of our people work for the government because you know, state Frankfurt is I the see, state right, capital, right. and uh, they have direct impact on uh, the way that our our government 
works and operates and has an effect in the lives of people. So to get to pastor there is yep. a great, great blessing. So one of the things I have our PhD students do in the class I teach on higher education, one of the little exercises I have them perform is to draw on paper a pictorial representation of the church and the academy and I just give it I make it that open which is an interesting exercise to just kind of think how would you pictorially represent are they is one inside the other or you know whatever so if you could just kind of do that mentally how would you describe the relationship of the church the academy um, you know like in a sort of pictorial figural kind of representation well I think uh Maybe you've never yeah. got to put you on the spot here. But well, okay. I, th I would make the church large and the academy smaller, but within separate it. circles or within uh, it? No, okay. I think within it. Within okay. it. Uh, so when you're when you're talking the church as institution, not merely a local church, but institutional right. use of the church, yep. I would put the academy within it, and it is it is not equivalent to it, and it it, it cannot lead it. But from within, I think it right. serves the church. Right. So that's the way I would I would represent it. And I guess we're using the word academy, and I, I the one who inserted that vocabulary into this, I guess in that sense we probably, we mean by academy probably seminary and Bible college education, right? In the, in the scenario you've just depicted. I would. Which is how I also depicted, I depict the, the, semin the church's academy within the church. In other words, I see it right. not as a, separate institution actually but as one of the branches so we might have youth ministry or maybe not our family ministry if you prefer whatever there's all different kinds of ministries the church might have and I actually see seminary and Bible college education as actually one part of that so I don't think see it as a separate thing as it is well uh, you know I think it's here's the fascinating thing I teach at a seminary but I, I'm comfortable saying that if churches really did their jobs, we wouldn't need seminaries. Yeah, I disagree with that. As we have them. When they get separated from the church, I do think you run into problems. Yeah. You just lose the reality of right of the people. So there's this broader sense of the academy that's not within the church. Like there's you know, scholars working on every field, including biblical studies that are not in the church. And I, and I think there's value in that too. So we're you know talking about specifically the more church-related academic world. But... Let's talk more about the, you know, if, if the church did its job, we would need the seminary. Okay. You do hear that. Um, I've, I've thought about that, and I, and, you know, there's a tendency for some people to really pump up that rhetoric, you know, that all theological education should happen within the church, and then some churches start, you know, institutes or other things like that to do it. My, my concern about that is that I think it's short-sighted in the sense that the like a church running an effective school because I think there's a lot of value to pure research. In other words, you, you do need people who are dedicated, have the skills and ability and the time to give themselves to a kind of level of academic work so that they can produce the commentaries and things like that. Well, uh, you know, that I, is I, not separate from the church. Right. You know what I mean, but well, that's the thing. I, I agree that that's needed, but I think what happens is that when uh, someone is oriented toward research, uh, ultimately you're going to have the temptation to be innovative. Right. And, and innovation, I think, is the enemy of continuing for the faith once we're all delivered to the saints. And 
uh, there's a there's a danger there, and right. without the the church to sort of rein that in and, and say no, here's the truth. Right. They were uh, confessional people. There's yeah, a confession guy. Exactly. Against, right. That 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 that's what the where the problem comes. One in. of my favorite views always right here. I always like to use right. Yeah. Well, I would say what I'm what I say is not. I disagree that it's short-sighted, but I do think it's idealistic, and I get that. Right. Because small churches just can't. Yeah, that's don't a, have the resources. Right. That's the. Other but thing. that's why yeah. I love Baptist polity, is that churches cooperate. Right. To pull it off together. Right. And right. I, I love that. Yeah. Well, Southern Baptists were the beneficiaries. Of that I mean, for sure. right. six yeah. seminaries. Yeah. Who right. has that? Right. Yeah. And so we're we're blessed as Southern yeah. Baptists that we've had visionary leaders who said let's let's use our resources together and right. do that. Yeah, because again, I, I'll just use one of our colleagues, Peter Gentry, as an example. We came up with other people as well. I mean, he's certainly able to function in the church, but you know, if he were housed within a church and paid by a church within its resources, and there'd be very few churches that could do that, he couldn't do critical work on the hexaplan, that's right. for example. And that's a benefit to humanity overall and the church specifically. Granted, you know, there's a, several layers between direct church ministry of Buckrun and and working on the you know Greek Old Testament. That's but right. if so, if we if we kind of pitch this model that it should all be done in church, I just think. Well, you're not going to produce the next generation of scholars that are needed to lead, at least in America. Now, granted, in other parts of the world, I mean, we do have a great luxury in the West, especially. In other parts of the world, it's not even an option, right? I mean, it's all going to be church-based. There just aren't going to be Christian educational institutions that are separate. But I don't know. I just, I kind of bristle at the the well, rhetoric sometimes of well, we could kind of work ourselves out of a job you know what I mean like I think no we're we're doing something that you couldn't do but even then I still think you know? you're looking at a, a really narrow slice right. what in general we're training our pastors yes and I do think churches can produce pastors yeah. I think if churches are doing their jobs that they right. can pastors can make disciples and churches can produce pastors yes and what Peter Gentry does is a is a really narrow slice of what seminaries right. are producing. Okay, we'll pull it back a lot. Like I'm who's gonna who's gonna write the who's gonna write the great commentaries? Yeah. Right? I mean you need well, I want I want scholars writing commentaries. Scholars who care about the church. Yeah. You know I mean, well, obviously and I think I hope I put myself in that category, you know. Absolutely. I mean I preach regularly and the, in fact and that is what I think Southern Seminary that's sort of the untold story of Southern Seminary. We're known for this incredible the theological education we provide but most people don't get that our faculty are largely pastors right, right. on some level either right. like me they're up in the pulpit every week right. I mean while Tom Schreiner was writing some of those commentaries know, he was yeah. preaching every at Clifton week. every yeah. week right right and uh, that gets lost I think I think Southern needs to do a better job of telling that story right. as well like hey come study with the authors yes and come study with pastors yeah because I mean like you I preach once a month. You, yeah, you're right. really connected. Timothy right. Paul Jones, yep. uh, Bill Cook. I mean, our our faculty are not sitting in the doctoral carols, you know, just writing books. They're they're connected to right. the local church. That's what one of the things I love about Southern. Well, let me shift gears. Pick a number between one hundred or one and one fifty-five. Pick a number. Yeah, between one hundred number one and one hundred fifty-five. 125. 125. All right. I happen to have with me your dissertation. 
and I was wondering during the page one twenty five. You haven't seen that thing in a while, probably. No, I've, I've never, I've never even seen, never, I've never seen, <laughs> never this even seen it. Embodiment of it. Okay, it's got I mean, your I've name on it. That is you, right? Yeah, that's right. me. So one twenty five, as I just said. Yeah. I thought you could just read a paragraph out of there. It's been a while. Okay. Tell uh, me what you think it means. Okay, so my title. Analysis, okay, give us the title. Yeah, that's good. Analysis and synthesis of the exegetical methods of discourse analysis and rhetorical criticism as applied to the structure of 1 John. Okay. Well, that's good. So, uh, so, on page 125, right, I'm going to read First of all, nobody agrees on the structure of 1 John. Okay. Yes, it is a struggle, having taught it many times. I agree. So, if you overlay the structure that the discourse analyst uh, Robert Longacre, SIL guys, yep, Wycliffe yep. translators, came up with, and the structure that uh, the rhetorical critics came up with, they they mesh. Okay. So you got this. Yeah, you notice the same seams, and and uh, one but not the, most commentators probably not biblical and people. So I, like in my appendix, I think I surveyed eighteen commentaries and showed that none of them agreed yeah. on those seams. Yeah. And so, why do these two different uh, means of uh, analyzing the text come up with the same structure? First John, and I'd right. say that they're both onto something. They're they're seeing deep structure. One in the light of ancient Greco Greco Roman rhetoric, and one using discourse analysis, basically the structure of language. And so, on page one twenty five, I'm I'm looking at the. Uh, the, the discourse analysis of First John, and I'm talking about peak. I think you, you had me speak to the yeah, 1892 yep, club. I'm yep, talking about peak yep. in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. So, uh, the body of the epistle likewise has a double peak, possibly in a chiastic relationship to that of the introduction. A doctrinal peak immediately followed by one of ethical concern. The latter is the much longer of the two, but the succinct doctrinal exhortation of chapter 2 verses 1 through 6 is a forceful plea for the readers to believe correctly regarding Jesus Christ. Marked by an initial agapetoi, the new unit presents a series of tests and a comment that identifies the teaching of the Antichrist. Since there were many Antichrists present, the appeal was critical. Okay. Can I comment on that? Still agree with that? Uh, I do. Okay. Uh, You know, uh, some guys look back at their dissertation and they're they're sort of ashamed of it. Right, right. Uh, well, I don't think you should be. <laughs> no, I, I, I am. I'm pleased with it. Yeah. Uh, I would do some things differently. Of I've course, learned yeah. some things right. since then. Right. But uh, at the same time, I was doing this with First John. George Guthrie was doing it with oh, Hebrews. Right. Okay. Yeah. And independently, we had both sort of hit that. Yeah. He was six months ahead of me. Okay. Did uh, you know George? Then I did not, or? but I okay. heard what he was doing and uh, and contacted him and he sent ah. me a copy of his dissertation as soon as he finished it. Nice. So he was six months ahead of me and of course that's when Bill Lane went crazy about it. Yeah. Basically yeah. Uh, yep. made Guthrie yeah. really well known. And George is a very good friend. Uh, and, and lovely man. Uh, yeah. He, he was yeah. very, very helpful to me. And so when I saw that he was doing it with Hebrews, I yeah. thought, well, well I am on Yeah, yeah. He scooped me by six yeah, months. Yeah. It's but, okay. Well, different. Um, at least it wasn't on, on first try. Yeah. <laughs> that's and, what it's like, sir. And and it made me feel good about my methodology. Yeah, I was going to say, can you describe what methodology, how do you end up describing your methodology? And so this is 1993, is that correct? So Yeah, that's quite a while ago. Yeah. So what, what was <laughs> Thank that? you. 
<laughs> it is quite That's, a while ago. It's a uh, cars, you coffee, see this, theology, you see this white hair. and criticism, right? Yeah. And uh, ageism. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, so uh, I, I think there's a way in which we can uh, analyze a, a epistolary literature, especially, uh, that recognizes the natural divisions and uh, the author's rhetorical purpose. And also, if you, if you use a linguistic approach, where you see it uh, the way, you know, Longacre in his uh, Grammar of Discourse talks about the deep structure versus mm -hmm. the notional structure, and uh, it also is based on what the author's trying to accomplish. Right. I think you give, uh, so- So who were the influences on you? It was, it was both? Well, Longacre, uh, Robert Longacre, who was very, very helpful, I uh, called him and he was going through throat cancer at the pro at the time. Was he in Dallas at SIL? Uh, he was at, at uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't in Dallas, it was in Texas. I think he was at Arlington. Okay. Yeah, he was at Arlington. And he was very helpful. Uh, and uh, uh, and then a, uh, a rhetorical critic named uh, Clauck, uh, German and then Helen Meal yep. uh, were uh, another discourse analyst were very very helpful. Uh, so I mean, those are two somewhat separate worlds: the linguistic yeah. side and then the very rhetorical. So they hardly so the, know. They don't know anything yeah, about so it. The great, and when you say rhetorical, you do mean that there was a decent a amount of that Greco-Roman rhetorical. Well, yeah. Uh, George so. Kennedy. Yep. George right, Kennedy. So the George name, Kennedy. My, right. my Greek professor at the University of Kentucky, Jane Phillips. Okay. Uh, Study with George Kennedy at the University oh, okay. of North Carolina. Because you had a background in classics, and that yeah, led to this, right? right? So yeah. yeah, I've got a I had a master's in classics, uh, classical Greek before I even went to seminary. Right, right. That makes huge. So I had four yeah. years of undergraduate Greek, and then a a thirty-hour master's in in classical Greek before right. going to seminary. So it really gave me a good head start. Yeah, and uh, and awareness of yeah classical forms and, and uh, right. And especially Greco rhetorical structures. Uh, I read Kennedy's uh, rhetoric in the New Testament, and I thought, man, he's on to something. Yeah, yeah. So in '93, it was fairly new. It yeah, it was, and and it's uh, you know, there's a it's it's kind of parked there, and there are some people, but I I don't think it ever kind of took off or it didn't come to dominate New Testament studies like maybe you think it would. No. I don't know if it's not, not if people had enough background in the classical part of it or what. Maybe, know? but it, it's it's still very helpful for Absolutely. especially right. structure and that's what I wrote on in First John. Right. Uh, and it's it's First John is really difficult to discern the structure, but I, I think the rhetorical critics and the discourse analysts got it right. Especially among evangelicals, it doesn't seem like you have a lot of people that have done a lot with rhetorical criticism. I mean, you you do have occasional commentaries that get a hold of it, Witherington or others. Uh, Witherington, and then, right. Yeah, and, like, and then other, and I'm sure there are whole branches yeah. of New Testament scholarship that do focus on it, but it just doesn't seem like, well, I, I'm quite keen on it myself, even though I don't feel like I'm an expert on it, but I'm just kind of surprised reflecting on it that it hasn't, there haven't been more works like this among evangelicals, you know. Yeah. So. Well, two things. One is there there are only so many, I think the, I think the epistles conform to it, but there were some who tried to impose that on, uh, like the Gospels, which right. I, I don't think the Gospels right. fit right. a Greco-Roman rhetorical structure at all. Well, except for the sermon. I mean, I, or well, you have to read my book. I, I mean, I think the sermon 
and all the epitomes I think they're they're epitomes is what I argue in the Greek philosophical sense they're summaries of a philosopher's teachings or a wisdom teacher's teachings put together in a but, rhetorical but form. You, would you say that's dependent on Greco-Roman conventions or that that's larger than that um, well I think it's larger than that in the sense yeah. that it's it is the reality of Second Temple Judaism which is deeply Hellenized already, yeah, right? right? So it's right. the, I describe it as the, it's the child of two worlds, Second Temple Jewish wisdom literature and the Greek world that, I mean, after all the things written in Greek, right? Right. <laughs> it's, it's written in Greek that's right. to Greek reading, Greek hearing audience, so obviously that's part of it too, you know? Right. Um, but, yeah. Although, I again, I would, my knowledge of actual, you know, rhetorical criticism I feel like is very sophomoric you know so I don't I don't think I lean heavily on that just for my lack of knowledge of it so I have a question for you so I, I have I have your recordings in Greek yeah. right the old uh, vocabulary yeah right well, well, the, 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 your reading I your throw. readings Lepo, I see right? yeah yeah you know, <laughs> oh like the readings reading, one yeah. yeah yeah right that so do you memorize any in Greek like do you memorize passages in Greek uh, I have not very much well, I've I've tried. Uh, like when I preached in First Peter, I said, "Okay, I'm going to memorize First oh, Peter." That's impressive. I, 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 but I didn't stick First with Peter. It. That's uh, particularly uh, nested phrases of yeah. very long ones, right? Oddly enough, though, I I have memorized some of the Psalms in Hebrew. Have you? That's yeah, impressive. And it's really helped my Hebrew a lot. Yeah, I bet. Uh, yeah, yeah. And especially the poetry of it. So yeah. Uh, but I, I have thought I'm I'm going to. I'm going to listen to your readings. Yeah, yeah. I just play them in my car. Yeah, well, that's, that's how I learned that's the idea. Like Psalm 118. I, I just played play it over and over. Played over and over, you know. Miss Motor, Kofi on Hat, you know. Yeah. Psalm right. 118. Yeah. yeah. No, that's do just, just hear it over yeah, and over. Absolutely. Well, yeah. that was the whole reason for those Greek vocabulary cassettes in the first day and then yeah. the, yeah. the back of the day. So, so the Erasmian pronunciation, which is fallen on hard times like when I was in seminary that was the only thing going but now there's like lots of rhetoric against the Erasmian pronunciation uh, on all kinds of people uh, it doesn't grate on your ears you're just old enough yeah yeah with me that that doesn't bother you to memorize the Erasmian or hear it well uh it it sort of does I mean I, I anytime oh, I hear it out. okay right. I hear it other than the way I learned it from Jane Phillips at the University of which would be a different pronunciation yeah 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 it's a, although you know, by the way, Jane Phillips wrote the commentary on uh, uh, Erasmus's paraphrase of the Gospel of John. Okay, you're the. I only know two other people that I, I even know about Erasmus's paraphrases, which I absolutely love. Well, yeah. if you look up the the, the Latin, very hard. The commentary of his for University of paraphrase Toronto of John. That's right. Yeah, Jane Phillips, who taught me Greek. And, uh, and she, so, what's funny, she came to Buck Run a few months ago. Really? Actually, it's been two years ago. I was terrified. I bet. I mean, <laughs> like, I mean, she was like a drill sergeant. You, if you came to, if you came to class unprepared, she devoured you. Yeah. I mean, like she, the there, were, there was no mercy. The old days when we beat up on students. What she happened to the good old days? And like, if she asked you a question and you could not answer it, right. you, you, you hadn't done your reading, like in Homer. We, I had her for the Odyssey. Right. She didn't go on to the next. If she asked a question, you couldn't answer it. 
she didn't, you know, just sort of on just pass person, on the yeah, yeah. She stayed with you and intimidated you. And like, why don't you know this? Right. And she would just let there be long periods of silence while you sat there <laughs> in humiliation. Regretting your life. Yeah. Regretting your choices. Tanya, who now loves her, I, may, I must get in there first, hated her then. You were married? At that uh, yeah. Point? Oh, right. yeah. Uh, uh, and I, was, I would get up at 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> to do to begin to prepare for an eight o'clock class and do my reading and scansion. So you know, you had good. to be able to scan the poetry. And, yeah. And Homeric Greek is a strange monster. Once you learn it, it comes in simply yeah, and easily. Right. But getting into it. So Erasmus's paraphrases. I just discovered those a few years ago because I teach a PhD seminar on the history of the interpretation of the Gospels that I've taught. I think three times now and. And so I'm always looking for primary and secondary documents on uh, where we just go through from the fathers on. And I don't know how I discovered them. I just kind of ran across them. And then um, the Latin's very difficult, I guess. I have not tried to read them in Latin. And But the University of Toronto has this Erasmus Center, and they've been translating them yeah. over some time. And they are just a beautiful piece of work that Erasmus, I've read some things on it. He, that was like one of the things he was most proud of, of all the things he did, yeah. was these paraphrases, which are, again, paraphrase is kind of an odd word for them. You, I don't know if you've read much in them, because paraphrase well, probably I've, sounds I've read negative. her volume. And, okay. But I'm, I'm, well, there's a Matthew one, and there's a bunch of, I've got Matthew and Mark, and others that have been translated. And they're, you know, it's, it's like this combination of theology and translation all together. It's not paraphrasing this kind of goofy, loose sense we might right. think of that. They're, they are remarkable. So they're just so fun to read. And he saw them as a great service to the church because he was saying regular people can read these, although the Latin's quite hard, and, <laughs> uh, and get, you know, get a kind of a sermon and a commentary and a Bible reading all in one kind of thing. Yeah. So you'll see in the pocket over there some, get some rain here. See some multicolored envelopes. I'll let yeah. you choose, not the open one, but any of those colors. Okay. And uh, so there's a random questionnaire. I have no idea what right. question you're going to choose, and I'll commit. I'll have you answer, and then I'll commit to right. the answer a blue as well. One. Going with blue. All right. Okay. In one sentence, how would you describe your relationship with your mother? Oh, I'm getting deep. Wow. <laughs> and that's, uh, frankly, that's a hard one. Yes. Uh, I understand. I would say my relationship with my mother is uh, very loving and fun, but complicated. Okay, so there's your one sentence. We're going to unpack it. that a little bit. Is she still living? Yeah, she is. Okay. Uh, still living. Uh, so my, my mom, I, I got my industry from my mother. Okay. Uh, she is absolutely... Uh, dogged in anything she does. Yeah. She does not quit. That's great. Um, she never complimented or praised any of us. That was my dad. And so... Oh, I, your, I, your, dad, your dad I, took that role? I, I, yes. So I'll good tell cop, you bad cop. Two things about my mom. So when I was 18, I got my real estate license. Went to night school my senior year of high school. <laughs> and got my real estate license so I could sell real estate during the summer before oh my, my freshman year at Michigan State. That's awesome. And I did quite well. And my mother said, <laughs> "That's hilarious. you just want to do that because you don't want to do real work. Wow. 
I mean, how many eighteen-year-old kids you know get their real estate license? No doubt, and made money for and college for money. it. No, no, other uh, no. Kids, I'm so proud of you. Other no, kids that. were delivering pizzas, and I was getting checks from houses that I listed that sold. <laughs> that is crazy. Uh, and and my mom was like, "Yeah, well." The other thing when, so my when I went to Michigan State, they were on quarters, and my mom said, "You're." You know, I got straight A's in high school, right. and my mom said, "Now don't expect to do that at college because it's much harder, and you're lazy. You don't work hard, and you won't do well. Wow, uh, you won't do as well." She didn't say you won't do well, but she said you won't do as well. You're not going to get straight A's, and you rose to the challenge. I'm my right first, my first quarter, I get straight A's, and they sent a certificate to my parents to my home. Thing. Right, you know, right, congratulations, right, straight right, A students, right, right. you know. And I go home, uh, and my mom says, well, uh, they sent this certificate, and I've hung it on the wall here, and I've left two blank spaces beneath it, because since you did it your first semester, there's no excuse for you not doing it. Okay, so your she second, changed your tune a little bit. second and third, uh, she said, you know, uh, and so it was like suddenly I said, "You what? You didn't even think I could do it. Now you're putting pressure on me that I have to do it." It's a lose-lose situation. Yeah, it right? was. But your dad was super encouraging. My dad was right? like, "Yeah, my dad was the most encouraging." So, because you're a very encouraging person yourself, so obviously, so you're saying you got yeah, your industry from, from my dad. Mother, That's right. Encouraging. Like my dad, dad, you know. So my dad was a missionary in Brazil when I was a baby, 1960. In 61, he thought he developed stomach cancer. I think it's now what they would call Crohn's disease. Right, right. But he was virtually incontinent. And, and you know, yeah. it's hard to do mission work yeah, when absolutely. you have that. And he thought he had stomach cancer. So you and came when back. he came, he came, one day he just decided we're going back to the States. Right. And he came home and he told my mother, we're going home. And my mom said, I'll miss you. <laughs> <laughs> That is awesome. And he, she told me, I mean, she told me this herself. And she said, you know, God called us here and he hadn't released me. I'm not going. I'm staying here. Is this IMB? Uh, no, they were, they were independent. They were with an independent. But even so, back in those days. Yeah, they were with the board. And the next day my dad came home and said, I sold all the furniture. And my mom said, she knew that and she really had no choice. This is 1961 and there was no mission board that's going to support a, right, a woman, a single divorced right. woman Baptist, on the field. Pastor, ex-pastor's wife. So uh, they came home. But I will tell you, you know, my dad went on and was a great pastor here in the States. And my mom? mom is 85 years old now okay. and she's still not over the fact that they came back from really Brazil. yeah you know like tanya and i have a really easy relationship right. we, we 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 adore each other right. we enjoy each other's company more than anybody else in the world right, rather, right. you know my mom and dad they had to work yeah. it was never easy they never they, right. they honored each other. They loved each yeah. other. Yeah, but, but it wasn't an easy relationship. It was yeah. not an easy relationship. And, and there's a lot of marriages like a that. A lot of marriages yep. like that. You know, I, that's, again, another one and of those reasons why I call myself God's spoiled child. Yeah. Because of, uh, you know, I, I, that's what sometimes You must be a real weakling that God gave you such a that's good That's what life, I right? say. That's what I say. <laughs> I'm I'm God knows. I'm, and you know, but the great thing is with your parents, that gives you an, probably a sympathy for... It does. What's probably more like what most marriages are Absolutely. Like, right? If you Absolutely just had this amazing does. marriage that's and right. then you just think, well, why don't you guys just do what's yeah, right? It'll be right. fine, right? You've got a sympathy for that. That's more. exactly right. Uh, 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 and 
And I've also seen how they made hard decisions to honor each other and stay together and and em- embrace the roles that God gave them. And, right. uh, and yeah, I, I've often said God knows what a wimp I am because he gave me like the easiest wife to live with, the easiest church to pastor, That's uh, beautiful. incredible, the best seminary at which to teach. So, well, it you is, know, but I, it is just beautiful. It's a gift. I mean, the thing is you've been faithful. I do not take yeah. it for granted. Right. Yeah. I do not feel entitled. Right. I am incredibly blessed and honored. Hey, man, well, this has been a delight. Always enjoy you and feel like you get to know you a little bit more too, which is great. There's that great so, dissertation. Yeah, I treasure it enough to get it from the library. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode. Make sure you subscribe to all of our social media and especially our YouTube channel. We also have a Patreon account if you want to support us that way. Thanks again. We'll see you on the road.